Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is Lieutenant Colonel Gregory Hawkins. He's a recovering educator, currently serving as the 133rd Maintenance Squadron Commander, which means he's in charge of people who fix the planes that we fly. Indeed. So, Colonel Hawkins, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, let's go on to the uh, recovering educator yes. part. You started out as a school teacher in Minneapolis? Yep, middle school math teacher from 90, 96 to about... 2014, something like that. So yeah, I did uh, about 150 kids, 125 kids a day, five periods, just kind of rotating on a schedule like that. So, yeah. as as we say in my family, Ufta. Yes. That's a lot of kids. Yes. And that, that's the fun thing is we can talk about teaching school kids because I'm I'm a recovering educator as well. Yeah. Uh, were you in the military the whole time as a traditional guard? I started in 96, taught for two years, and literally, and I've always wanted to serve. So in 98, I actually joined, and it's because of the reserves I'm over at the Guard. Oh, so you started out in the Air Force Reserve? Nope. Went oh. over there because I wanted to enlist, and uh-huh. with school, you know, you had the summer break and all that. So I'm thinking, I've got three months, let's just pull a trigger, let's do it. Went over to the reserves, went to a recruiter, and... She started to kind of get into a little tiff, mentioned something that about an appointment time, and she pretty much said I was late. And I was like, well, if I get off work at 4 o'clock, there's no way I would have set an appointment for 4 o'clock. So I'm like, screw you. I don't need this. I can go elsewhere. Literally drove off the base or on the 34th, got on the 62, and saw the sign for the Minnesota National Guard. What's that about? So I literally drove up to the gate and said, I'm thinking about enlisting. And the gate guard looked at me like I was crazy. Sat there for about 15 minutes. <laughs> drove and parked and went to talk to Marcus Carter, my recruiter, and told him I liked to enlist. And he just kind of looked at me like I was crazy, too, for a little bit. And we went from there. Because you're, well, I'll use air quotes on a podcast, an old man, right? I was 27 at the time. And not super old, but still. Yeah, I mean, when we're used most to having... 18 and 19, yeah. yeah young yeah. men and women coming out of high school. Yep. You're old. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> so old and crazy. <laughs> but I'm all fine. It'll, it'll still loving it, though. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds familiar because I took a wrong turn looking for the Air Force Reserve and ended up at the guard base, too. There we go. Happy, <laughs> happy every day. Yep. Happy every day out here with this crazy family we work with. Mm-hmm. We're all crazy in some way. Aren't oh, we? definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, old man goes to basic training. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? Actually, it was a lot of fun. It's, I'm glad I went in later because I was already on my own established. Like I said, I was a full-fledged bill-paying, tax-paying adult at that time. Uh-huh. So, when you get down to basic and they took away all of these things, I'm like, okay, all right, what's the big deal? But for some people, they could not have desserts, so they were losing it for that. Or some people couldn't talk to their friends. Or this was the first time an 18-year-old had been away from home other than a sleepover at their friend's house. Mm. So they were kind of wrecked. For me, I'm like, this is what I signed up to do. I understand what it's about. Those connections that I have to the outside world are still there, and I can see that big picture opposed to like an 18 or 19 their world is this week, this day, this hour, and yeah. pretty much it wasn't a phone back then, but how they could get together with their people. Do you think that we set people up well? Um, I'll back up on that. Is that part of the process of basic training is taking away so much stuff that our young men yeah. and women are just used to having? Oh, definitely. It's the whole rainbow flight thing. You get there, everybody's different. Bring you in, give you a buzz cut, give you the Lackland laser and all that, and when you see the baby flights walking, everybody's out of step, out of sync, but two, three weeks in, you kind of got something going and everybody's a collective. Did you lose your individuality? No, not at all. Uh, and there was great things about being in the guard, you know you're always coming home. Yeah. So you're living on that, like, okay, this is X amount of days, 
I have my donut of despair where I'm crossing out the days and I just know I'm always going home. I know the job I'm going to. I know I'm not going to active duty to deal with some of the stuff that they deal with. So yeah. when I when I came in, I, I was active duty. Uh, and so I didn't know where I was going, but I knew uh, a little bit differently. I saw it as a this is a transformation for me. Mm-hmm. You saw this as a step and you knew you were going to go home. Oh, definitely. And finished basic training, yeah. went, to, went to tech school and became a fuel. I started in ISODOT. Can you explain ISODOT? Oh, isochronal inspection where we take the plane and pretty much all this, if you take your car to go get an oil change, they talk about all this stuff of you need this, you need that. We do those things that are recommended by the manufacturer on our plane right. at certain intervals. And instead of saying, nah, I could blow that off, we can't do that with an aircraft. So did that for a little bit. Went over to POL, um, Petroleum, Oil, and Lubricants and Logistics. Pump fuel for a while. Then got commissioned into maintenance. Then went back to LRS as an O, where I did the IDO, smaller terminal, which I think their new name is Air Air transportation, transportation function, because Heather Booten was one of my guests. There so we went go. to Logistics Squadron. Yep. And Did basically that. the function of our Logistics Squadron mm-hmm. is is to move stuff around, Pretty take much. things in, move it around, right? Yeah. The UPS of the Air Force. The UP, UPS of the Air Force. Yep. And you're an, a new officer there, correct? Over in maintenance. First I've done that for a while. Yeah. So the full-time spot cropped in about 2014. So that's when I moved over to Logistics full-time. Okay. And it's a great thing because maintenance, we kind of think we just need to fix the plane. Logistics is an area that I really think does not get highlighted enough because they do a lot of things. Like, for example, the ATF, besides besides moving cargo around, they have a lot of different functions that they do that help out the ops group with their training. So... Besides dropping the bundles or the heavies and things like that that they need for their counters and training, they do a lot. And then logistics itself, they just don't have parts sitting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. If they did, they'd give them to us. But we understand they're doing the best they can with what they have. So we definitely appreciate them. So for somebody that doesn't necessarily wear a uniform and understand, we've got certain rules when it comes to how much stuff we can have on shelves. Yes. And the answer to that is, we can't have a lot of stuff sitting on shelves because then mm-hmm. the government buys stuff that they don't use. Correct. And then it's everything is about eliminating waste, right? <laughs> That's the prevailing theory. That is the prevailing theory. <laughs> and plus, we have sunset parts with our legacy aircraft, so there are a lot of contracts out there that aren't making those. So that's kind of what's happening with that. So that's a lot of transition. Yes. Right. Going from enlisted to commissioned. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Going from civilian. To enlisted, enlisted maintenance person to commissioned maintenance person to logistics officer person, and you're teaching school. Yes. During this whole time, up until 2014. And we've talked a lot about the the struggle that people have to to work to balance yes. and find balance. Mm-hmm. Was it a struggle for you, or is this just a natural extension of who you are? How do you handle all this? It's a little bit of both. Good thing we have the calendar. So I know when I'm supposed to be here at base. So off the top, I know I'm not scheduling anything around that. Definitely the outside job pays the bill. So you got to kind of keep that floating in well. So if you have your calendar from work and your calendar from here, things can kind of be arranged and you let your supervisor know an appropriate amount of time so you can work something out. So you've successfully navigated a military career using the school calendar, right? And the base calendar. And our base calendar. Yep. So the balance comes down to watching the dates real carefully. Pretty much. Has it ever not jived really well for you? Yeah, there have been a few conflicts, but nothing that wasn't truly able to be worked out. It was one of those more so more of a conversation. Since I had both calendars there, I know when stuff is coming. Yeah. I feel for a lot of people that things will pop up. And I know the base does not want to be the hammer and throw it out there. Hey, if we need you, we can throw down this and throw the lawyers and all that stuff. Not our temperament out here. Mm-hmm. So is 
good that we have relationships with different employers where it's at the conversation level or and they just need proof that a person's going to be out here at the time. It's been a challenging year when it comes to the stress that our airmen have been feeling out here. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they're employers. Yes. So just in the last 365 days, we've been fully activated, mm -hmm. uh, partially activated mm -hmm. for COVID response, fully activated for George Floyd uh, mm -hmm. response, partially activated for COVID, partially activated for uh, Washington, D.C. in the inauguration. Mm -hmm. And now we are uh, facing more state activation for the Derek Chauvin trial, which started today yes. as we're recording this. Mm -hmm. You're a Minneapolis resident. Indeed. And you taught in Minneapolis. Yes. And that is your community. Yes. What... I want to ask what's going through your mind right now mm -hmm. when it comes to the heart that you have for your community. And you're an African-American man in yes. that community. Mm -hmm. um, the struggles that, what's the personal talk? Can you can you take us through that when it comes to what your communities that you are a member of are going through? Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big one, isn't it? It is one of those questions. And as a military guy, African-American man, that you're kind of two people. One, I'm the military person here, and then there's me back in the community. Yeah. So... Me here, I know we have a job to do. Yeah. Definitely get it, got it, we're going to move forward, we're going to do it. And that's pretty much what's going to happen. The personal side of me, which supports the military side of me, sees we've been here before and it will happen again. can't really speak on the specifics of what happened, even though we saw a video and all that, we need to let the law do what the law does. And we will see reaction one way or another. So, me personally in the community, it pretty much, growing up in Chicago, Southside, this is something that we know an awakening will come of people's seeing this happen, but in the next news cycles, this will pass. Now, while it passed and folks are watching freaking cat videos and all that other kind of stuff, we're still out here living this life in which when I get in my car, I have a feeling that I probably will get stopped. And it only tempers down when stuff like this happens because there's a huge spotlight on what's happened to the African-American community across America. So, I kind of see it as one of these things where, and I'll just say one of my white colleagues, they get stopped by a cop. For them, it's an anecdotal story that they can come to work and say, hey, this happened and blah, 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 blah. For me, I can't feel that way because I don't foresee and, it's, and I know every cop is not bad. You have great ones, you have some that suck. Whenever something goes wrong, the first person you call, you call the cops. And a lot of them are wonderful. But the chances of you running across someone who's not is very probable. What? I asked you a big question and, I, and now I feel like I have more to unpack based on your answer. Um, what what fixes this? Because <laughs> what I heard from you, people are going to go back to watching their cat videos, mm -hmm. and pretty soon we're going to we're going to stop having conversations. And just before the podcast started, I asked a simple one: yeah. white guy sitting in a room, mm -hmm. are you black or African American? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you gave you gave me the answer that just kind of kind of fits well. What what fits the time? And it's. And the and it really depends, because I get that question a lot. Do you? Because some people want to know, because this, they don't want to offend, they don't know how to come at you. So most people are like, hey, is it black or African-American? I'm like, well, how about Mr. or Lieutenant Colonel? You know, one of the two. 
can't take a pick. But, <laughs> so you don't want to, and you, some people will ask because of the relationship they think they may have with you. Because there are some people who generally want to know. They don't know because they didn't grow up like you. Right. They don't live like you. They don't interact with people. You know, so they want to know. Mm-hmm. And they have a way of asking because I'm like, you know, I got something on my mind. I'm curious about something. I'll ask. For example, Colonel Kalita asked a question, and I know he's genuine because he's a genuine guy. He's not going to BS about anything. He's just, like, going to put it out there, and I know it's coming from a good place. Yeah, that's our boss out That's there. it. That's yeah. just kind of how it is. Others you may not have that relationship with, so they really, they kind of tiptoe around you, or they kind of throw stuff out there thinking, well, I'm just going to freaking ask. I'm like, mm, that may not be the best. So thing. is the relationship the important part yeah. of this? Yes, it is. What helps the community have a relationship of, of trust? When we talk about how, where the big issue is, systemic racism, mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking about that for the last year. You've been living with that your entire life. <laughs> There's a big disparity in time there. Yeah. But when we start, how do we have the relationships with one another that is trusting enough to ask, just ask the simple question? Yeah. Or ask the stupid question and not be thought of that, you know, I'm asking out of ignorance or even out of, um, I'm tr- trying to cause trouble or, or put you on edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, do we, how do we start to get to the point where we just trust each other? Trust is earned. Yes. And it's built. So I think the interaction among people is what will do it. There's a trust I don't say issue but some people will wonder we live in a city in which there's a right now our base is in the diverse community pretty much all around us but if you look on base there's not a lot of diversity here on base we have some and it's been improving and work has been done but it's not like the populace around us that goes way back for example how much time we got we're, we're doing we're doing really well. We're doing really well. So, trust has always been an issue, and just looking at it from my point of view, my dad was in the Air Force, and my brother he spent some time in the reserve and all that, but that's not kind of why I joined. But that was my exposure to it. So my experience was positive. If you go way back, there's a distrust with the military. By the African American community towards the military, some yes. Okay, and it comes from a place, and it's for example when I told people I enlisted, they're like, "Why did you do that?" And because I had already been out multiple degrees, all that other good stuff. They're like, "You don't have to do this." Like, no, I want to do this. I came to the guard to serve because I wanted to serve my country. I feel like I'm a part of this country, and I want to serve it. So that's just me. If you look back at the Vietnam era, folks are getting drafted. Now, the only thing a lot of people would see is, hey, my uncle, my cousin, my dad, they're leaving. Now, mind you, it was happening in all other communities as well, but what you see mm-hmm. are your people leaving and your people coming back in body bags. You see that. Regardless of what the news may be reporting, you see that. Then there was a Tuskegee experiment. Familiar with that? Familiar. All right. For those of us who are on the podcast and all that, where our government literally, on purpose, transmitted, delivered syphilis to members up until the 70s and used them as a control group in Tuskegee. Now, mind you, those people grew up, they had families, their children had issues, all of that. So you see that kind of stuff, and you're like, this came from our government, which folks associate with our military, because mm-hmm. we're kind of in it together. That. And we always say we are 1,200 recruiters on the base. Because granted, here on base, we, what, we got about four or five? Duluth may have four or five collectively across the state air recruiters, about 10 folks. 
we say we're 1,200 recruiters, all that other stuff. So you get a lot of people that, they're, it's a family thing. You guys were good enough for the old man, good enough for me. Cool, great. We taught this 1,200, but that 1,200 is not going into the community. Are we getting better at that? The effort is there, and I'm thinking um, we need to tweak and direct to make it a little bit more intentional. Okay, so you're, you're telling me you have good effort. Yeah. It's like good game, right? But we got things we can do better. Oh, no. What does, yeah. what does better look like to you so that our, our community organization that we are in, and honestly, that has been so clear this year with so much community work that we've been doing in the community, uh, starts to look more, sound more, act more like the community that we serve. What's better? I think our efforts need to definitely be out in the community. The nicest way I can put it, I'm an African-American man, and I'm out in the community. I'm a black man year long. So to find me in January leading to through to February to Black History Month, that's not enough. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I was talking with Gaddis downstairs about, hey, one of our recruiters, yeah. yeah, let's get out there and see. And it's not a matter of even trying to direct people in. It's just a matter of our presence being out there. So people can get comfortable enough to say, huh, who are them dudes? And they need to see us with other people also. To say, hey, this is an everybody kind of thing. This, the base just didn't send African-American faces out here just for you. We are here. The statue that we get, the Miniman, mm -hmm. if you ever get a chance, roll out to uh, Concord, Massachusetts. Air National Guard Museum is down there also. It's the spot where the first shot was fired. And I was lucky enough to go there on the day. It literally was raining and the rain stopped. And I literally went out to the site. And that statue is out there. And the field is preserved just as it was back then for the most part. When things had to happen, the community came out. We're at a point now where we're part of that community and we need to come out. It's that relationship thing that it comes down to. Um, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. What's the first best step that we can take? When you talk about you know that field that's preserved and that's where the first shot was fired, what's the first best step? We keep on taking steps. What's the, what's the first best or the next best? To be genuine. Genuine. That's it. We as a base have things we need to do to support our national objective. We have TOs, we have all that to follow, job guides, all that. We know those things. Folks follow them whether they believe them or not. In other words, some engineer said do this, we do this. We need to be genuine in our steps forward. In other words, why am I really here? Mm -hmm. Am I here just to make myself feel good in the community? Am I here because somebody planned an event and I just want to show up because I need an EPR, OPR bullet? Why am I really here? Am I doing things out in the community that's not associated with the base? Am I willing to give up my time to go help out in the community? So that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. That's a start. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the first best step. For now. Yeah. We, uh, so you grew up on the south side of Chicago. Yes. And tell me about the upbringing. Tell, tell me about the challenges of just getting to school. Oh. <laughs> That was about an hour, hour and 45 minutes on the city bus. I had to go through two gang territories and then an all-white neighborhood just to get to school. All-white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And Chicago had lines that divided the city. So, example, Cicero Avenue 
you already knew what was on the west side of Cicero Avenue. Pretty much going east of that, you kind of knew. So depending on where you are, you kind of know what's around you. And you need to kind of be aware of those things. On 79th Street, you get to a certain point where it would pick up kids heading that way. And from Cicero to Central Avenue, which is like mile, mile, mile and a half, mm -hmm. the bus just kind of ran. Because most folks who lived out there, either they walked from that point or they drove to school. That I was there. By the time... I graduated with four other African-American guys. The school had been open since 61 or something like that. Huh. And I think we were like the 25th members of color to have ever graduated from that school. <laughs> so, How was that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> some people would get there and they didn't feel comfortable and they would leave. Or some people would say, I'm not going out there to begin with. Um Okay, so that that school was a choice. Yes. Was it your choice? Yes. Why? A lot of the schools, the public schools near me, I did not think would have been suitable. They did not seem to have the academic rigor I would need later in life. So you knew academics was important early on? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, definitely. Did you want to be a teacher when you grew up? It was on the table. Or a maintenance officer at the 133rd. I actually always wanted to be an Air Force member. All right. You know, um, I had the little bubble sticker that said, aim high from back in the day, oh, which yeah. I guess that's come back around. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've always wanted to be an Air Force member. When you were growing up, your family structure, I have no idea. What was your family structure growing up? Uh, mom, dad, and older brother. Okay. And over the past year, we have become familiar I have become familiar with the air quote, quote unquote the talk that every young African American man has to have, okay. and that is how to act when you get pulled over because it's not an if it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's how many times have you been pulled over? About twenty nine in various states, and I'd say out of that twenty nine, two were definitely mine. I wholeheartedly it was me. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> one I was speed, another one I ran a light. Uh -huh. Other than that, it seems suspicious. You cannot, well, I try not to come out and blatantly say they stopped me because I was black, but I'm going through my head what else could it have been. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to definitively say that's what it is, but the probability of it not being that is suspect. What's the most suspect? Tell, oh, there's help me understand there. your perspective on this, because um, oh. I'm oh. I, I, I'm clueless. Well, few things. There have been so many. It just kind of kind of sits a little different in your mind. Um, walking. Yes, you've I been was, pulled over walking. Yep. Right on Lindell Avenue. Here Thinking I'm going to do the responsible thing. You know, didn't live too far from there back in those days. So I said, hey, I'll just go there, have a few drinks with colleagues, walk home. Uh -huh. Now, mind you, I just had a few. wasn't like falling over or anything like that. So I'm walking down the street and the spotlight pops on. Yeah. Where are you going? I'm going home. He said, where do you live? So I told him, and it was almost like a Jedi mind trick. He's like, no, you don't. I was like, what? So I was like, damn, I thought I'd been paying rent at the same way. I, I pretty much think I know where I live, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, they got out, did a little rousting and all that kind of stuff, and ran the license, and all that, I believe. And Oh, fine, you have a good night right after that. Now, mind you, I'm pissed at this point, mm -hmm. but I don't want to be harmed by them and I know that's a reality once again every cop is not like that there's a certain percentage that is and every cop is not like that but but having the talk or understanding the talk or or trying to oh, understand yeah. you just don't know no you don't it's growing up 
you didn't really understand. The big thing when I was growing up, when the streetlights came on, you were inside. That was it. That you, because you know, as kids, you won. You didn't have a watch, um, so you're out there playing. You see the streetlights come on. That tells you, okay, it's getting dark. I need to go home. Boom, you went home. If you were late, I didn't understand at the time that your parents are worried about you just making it home for various reasons. And the older you got, the reasons were, were you stopped somewhere? Are you being detained somewhere? Along with the other concerns a parent would have for their kid. So that's something that had to really sink in. The feeling, the feeling of anxiety is one thing, I imagine. When the lights come on and all that, is it fear? There's the flash of that. Because everybody wants to go home. Yeah. And I don't want to move suddenly and get taken out. So now when I get stopped, pretty much what I do is take the keys out the ignition, hold my license in one hand and the keys out the other, and I just leave them there. Yeah. Because I'm like, you see my hands. I'm not moving. And I know everything on the car, and I'm not like I'm driving anything fancy or anything like that, but everything on my car is legal. Everything. So I know I can't be pulled over for some BS like that. I have seen your car. Oh, yeah. It is well within the bounds of average. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> but I'll bet it's paid for. It's well paid for. <laughs> and all of mine have been like that. So it's not like I'm out there doing anything flashy. It's not like I'm out there with the darkest of tint, anything like that. Right. It's a legal car from the license plates to the tabs to the registration, whatever. Yeah. It's legal as can be. So... With both hands out, and just for a blip, sometimes you think, I don't know who's going to get out of another car. Is it going to be some a-hole that's just on some power trip? Or you're going to get a guy that's actually looking for something. When I was teaching in South Minneapolis, there was, if you get on 38th Street, that's the street um, George Floyd was killed on, but just to mention. If you get on 38th Street and you... Right at a certain speed, you could literally catch almost every light from, oh, probably further west of Chicago, almost all the way down to Hiawatha, almost, without truly speeding and things like that. You can just flow. If everybody's driving, you can move. So I get pulled over, got off work, got pulled over, gunpoint, and I can remember it was an 85 Cutlass. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking and trying to tell this guy, I literally just got off work. Still had a little teacher badge on and all that kind of stuff. And I'm telling you, you get called to school. You get like literally, I'm miles from school, just pretty much leaving. Was held there for a while. Well, later that night, there was a robbery with. A car that looks something like mine from some guy that was like six something and I'm like five seven yeah and with a crowd of people with them but they pulled me over and just kind of held. now mind you it is something weird to sit there in your car and look in a side mirror and see a guy with his gun out and the other guy just kind of there waiting and you really don't know where it's going to go from there yeah so I just kept quiet, sat there with my hands out the window, and just sat there literally for, oh, I'd say about 30 minutes. That's beyond anxiety. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to take um, people and have the first inclination that these folks have the very best of intention with me? It's not even that. It's a matter of, for me, it's, you just become at peace with yourself. It's weird where whatever they're going to do, 
you almost are ready for it. Because we read this story before. The alternative is going to be one, possibly two or three things. So we've been here. So out of all those times I've been stopped, take it twice. That's a lot of time just waiting with, a, as you say, a different sense of peace within yourself. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it's a peace I don't understand how you have in those moments. Hmm. It's what, disturbing, but not unexpected. No, I, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Everybody, the, the rational answer is we need to do something different, though, mm-hmm. so that our, to the point where our young African-American men don't need to have the talk. Mm-hmm. How do we get there? <laughs> what's, your, what's your thought? Or can we? Eventually, yeah. you know, it's a, I have to believe it can happen because if not, things will get worse. So we've been bad as a country. <laughs> I mean, historically, we've gone from slavery to where we are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been really bad. Funny thought. Some people will say it really hasn't changed. Some people would. The names just changed. Mm-hmm. So we're there. And granted, I'm hopeful things will get better because if I don't, I'm just giving up. And I have to be able to pass that to the next generation is that you need to keep moving forward regardless of what your race is. We as a country definitely need to keep moving forward. I see, and that's another reason I'm definitely a proud member of the Minnesota Air National Guard. We're living in this VUCA environment in which we have extremism in the ranks. Granted, out here, folks may not display it, but you can't tell me out of 1,200 people, somebody's not going home living that lifestyle that they really are once they take the uniform off. They're there. Now, back in the day, it may have been a little bit more blatant, but it's almost like the, the philosophy has changed. Like, hey, I still want to be a part of the guard, so I need to change up my tactics. As the United States changes up its tactics to deal with near-peer threats. The extremism in the military and why we're talking about it and having these conversations, doesn't it come down to the fact that we've got people in the ranks that can't live an authentic life? Oh, yeah. And Definitely. If they did lead their authentic life, they would need to be out. Mm-hmm. Is social justice, does social justice start well in the military? They talk about an organization that desegregated itself early compared to the rest of American society. <laughs> Legally, mm-hmm. okay, so the rules changed, but we're still not there, mm-hmm. correct? Definitely. Yeah, anybody can say that a memo. Oh, of course. But action, that's where it's at. Yeah. Are we taking the, you talked about the, the steps, we're taking steps forward, right? Are we, is forward the right direction where we're going right now? When it comes to extremism or any other thing that is not healthy to, for the military, are we taking the right steps forward? I was watching, I think it was Dateline a few nights ago. And it was a story about specifically Air Force on how African-American members are being disciplined more so than other races in the force. That's the study that just came out from mm-hmm. the Secretary of Defense. Well, and I, you know, I thought about that. I was like, I wonder, because I've been fortunate enough not to have been disciplined. Now, I've been talked to a few times about a few we things. We all have, haven't we? <laughs> but never truly disciplined because I never really did anything that warranted that. So at that point, but then I had to think about it. I was like, it's hard for me to say because I'm the one who will do the discipline at this point because of my position. (laughs) So, and 
I do not have a lot of African Americans in my squadron, so I can't see it at this point because I can't. One, I couldn't come down on the folks because of the sheer makeup of what I'm working right. with, and two, I then I had to ask myself: Am I disciplining? You know, my white counterpart, the same, or not counterpart, but the airman, yeah. the same. And it's, I'm like, it's pretty fair, in my opinion. Like, hey, you did something, it was recognized, and it's going to be proven. So now we have steps that we take. It's not a matter of it being more harsh or not, it's just what it is. I foresee a path forward that not only ties with our state mission, it'll tie with our national mission also and the mission abroad from there. I see our state definitely pushing for those things. Well, the guard pushing for those things, I should say. I think our leadership at the very top is supportive and aware of what needs to happen and just developing a me mechanism or manner or way forward. I think that's where it's going. Relationships are really, and you've alluded, alluded to this, the idea that, hey, having relationships with people, um, that's the number one thing that can bring about good change. It's not mm -hmm. it, it, making, making a rule and making, every, making the rules say everybody gets along. <laughs> Until there's good, decent relationships and people can talk, that's that's where the rubber's really going to meet the road. I I think I hear you when you say that. Mm -hmm. All right, um, we're going to take a break. Let me reintroduce you. I've been talking with Lieutenant Colonel Gregory Hawkins, Maintenance Squadron Commander. We've been unpacking some heavy stuff. Uh, we'll take a little break here, get back, and uh, unpack a little more, and then have a little bit of fun if you're okay with that. Sure. All right. Uh, if you're listening, hang on. We'll be right back. I'm Krista Sheridan, the WING Sexual Assault Response Coordinator. April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month, or SAPM. While we focus on awareness and prevention efforts all year, April gives us an opportunity to highlight and dedicate our attention to the awareness and prevention efforts. Throughout the month, we encourage you to join us in the SAPAMUT initiatives across the wing, such as Teal Tuesdays or Take Five, as well as state, national, or international events like International Denim Day on Wednesday, April 28th, in support of survivors of sexual assault. For more information regarding the SAPAM events or to receive support or services, please contact the SAPR 24-7 helpline at 855-713-7272. That's 855-713-7272. Or find us on the WING app. Hawkins, the maintenance squadron commander here at the 133rd Airlift Wing, and we were talking pretty heavy and, and getting beyond um, or getting through, I guess, uh, some of the challenges in our society and in the Guard. Um, but it comes down to relationship yep. and building relationships with one another. And the funny thing is, um, we went to break, and while you all were listening to the great commercial that we had going on, we started talking about wine tasting in California. And I learned that you are a Malbec fan. Yes. Um, I'm not. I, I, so here we are getting all snobby and talk, talking about uh, which red wine we like uh, and started chatting about going wine tasting in California. So what's the, what's the difference between a good Malbec and a bad Malbec? The aftertaste. Yeah? Yeah, just that once it goes down and you get that aftertaste and you can really, some folks get into all the tan, tannins and all that other kind of stuff. Me, I just like a good taste and all that. So that aftertaste. That's pretty much where it's at. For sure. Mm -hmm. I, I'm the same way with a good Cabernet. Mm -hmm. um, 
but the atmosphere where you go and you kind of experience it. If you're with a friend or if you're, my wife and I went out and it was just the two of us, kind of living the emptiness life and, and going out wine tasting. <laughs> it's it's got to be nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, so doing the research on our talk today, I, I learned a couple things about you. One, you are a ninja commander, and that's uh you don't, you know, hang from the rafters and surprise people, but you are out a lot with your folks. Yeah. Is that what you really enjoy about your job? I love every minute of it. Um, I love teaching school. It was great. But hands down, being a maintenance squadron commander or being out here at the base, period, is a great opportunity. After being on the outside of the gate and then working on the inside of the gate, I think it's one of the best kept secrets out there. Getting with the people is wonderful because you get a chance to see what they're doing. You get the chance to, someone can brief you about it and that's nice, but to actually see your people and to be able to talk to your people. And they're feeling a little bit more comfortable with me around because I just don't show up and everybody locks up. <laughs> so mm -hmm. they are genuine in what they're doing and how they're relating to them. Yeah. If they've got a problem, they're at a point they're like, hey, I got a problem with this. Okay. Opposed to beating around the bush and dragging on about things. One of the, if you're not part of the military and we say, hey, so-and-so is a commander in the military, it's kind of a CEO type position, right? Where yes. you're, you're responsible for the money, you're responsible for the people's time, you're responsible for the efficiencies, mm -hmm. uh, the production, all of this. Yeah. And so when somebody says, hey, the CEO is coming around, people do the same thing out in the civilian world, I imagine. Yes. Or like that first time that you're student teaching and the principal comes in to do the observation. Yeah. Uh, you and I had, yeah. have similar hairlines. <laughs> yeah. And I had hair when I went through mine, but oh, I yeah. remember the sweat oh, probably yeah. was soaking up through my head because mm -hmm. it's nerve-wracking. Yes. How have you gotten to the point where walking around your folks are comfortable with you? How do you do that? You make an effort to get out of the office. You definitely have to step away from it, at least I do. One, I'm not a computer guy as it is. You know, I'll do well on it and I'll function on it, but pushing paper all day is not my thing. It's the people. Because pushing paper is nice, it gets things done. A lot of the work that people need comes across electronically or paperwork form, but they need to see you and they need to know you want to hear from them. So I make that effort to get out and see what they're doing. What's the most difficult thing that someone has told you? A lot of it stems from they want to come out and actually do their jobs. And we have, and granted, we have a need for online training, um, different things we have to check off, different requirements we have to fill. But it's a shame for a maintainer to come out for a drill weekend or to come out for drill and not touch a plane. They want to do their jobs. They, they're really proud of what they do. They want to learn. And not saying the requirements that we have are BS or anything like that, but they just come around so often. Maybe if we adjusted the schedule on them a little bit to free up some time, that may help with training around, we believe around the base. The other caveat to that is once we free up this time, we notice we get more requirements that come will come down from other airports. Funny how that works. So it's a matter of us fighting that off so that people can do what they actually came out here to do. Do you feel like you lead craftsmen? Yes, definitely. Yeah. They are wonderful at what they do. Each specialty in itself I am in awe of what they do every day. It's kind of nice to see where we are because we have the more seasoned folks. I call it the crust of the pie. They're a little crusty, but you know, a little pie, a little crust every now and then is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Then we have our mid-range folks who are doing the training of our newest troops coming in. And our youngest troops coming in, they're very bright. They're wonderful what they do. They want to learn. They want to be on the road. They want to take care of things. And they're highly educated, and they're doing what they need to do here and in college and using the benefits so they can do well later in life. So 
this this great diverse force that we got you know the the crust of the pie mm -hmm. and then that those mid folks that are really doing the teaching of our young energetic motivated folks the guard has a good mix of that yes. we grow our folks pretty well mm -hmm. and yeah it's kind of a family you start here you grow up here mm -hmm. eventually you and I will retire. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it'll it'll be a happy day, but a sad day because mm -hmm. I feel like the place is in excellent hands. You had an opportunity to deploy, and as a lieutenant colonel, your boss was one rank below you. Yeah. How? Okay. First, why did that happen? Because oh. in the military, that's not supposed to happen. When we deploy. We have different unit time codes, and from those, we go away as a package. Mm -hmm. So, the active duty fills some spots, we'll fill other spots. And with those line remarks, we could either go up a skill level or rank or down one. So, I was in that one where I would go up. So, when I arrived in theater, you know. The guy that in theory was my boss, you know, he was okay, but it's a thing that you always will respect the rank because I know he has a job to do and I know he's going to be there deployed for a year. We were just kind of passing through doing ours. So we had to have a conversation and just needed to let him know that, hey, we're here to work and the guard does great work and we mix well with active duty and we fly quite well and i'll never tell our operators this but they are some of the best aviators i've ever known here at the 135th yes indeed oh yeah and but right now one of them probably fell off a chair because the head just <laughs> and fell over <laughs> but they really are great at what they do yeah mm -hmm. yeah so you chose to go into a, a spot where you probably were going to be supervised or working for somebody that outranked you yes what was the, knowing how we grow our, our people in the guard, knowing the caliber of traditional one week in a month, mm -hmm. work on the planes, the other, uh, the, the rest of the time you're a public school educator, a, a, you know, food assembly worker or something. The, fo the fact that our people can shift gears so quickly and still be skilled craftsmen, mm -hmm. um, did you have a hard time convincing that active duty culture, the mindset that we're just here as part-timers, what was the challenge in teaching them about what makes us unique, special, and really good? It's kind of funny. They think you, you're rolling in as folks that don't know what you're doing or you don't have this same work ethic. But our planes are 95, 96 models and with some with over 10,000 flying hours on them, and they're great aircraft. So when you start putting up these large numbers that really got into missions that they would not have been able to do without our aircraft, mm -hmm. they kind of back off of you because you're successful. So you really don't have to say much. Pretty much my function is to be that poo umbrella because they want to put you into their world. But so I just need our people to get up, go to work, do their job for 12 to 13 hours a day and go rest so they can do it again the next day. Mm -hmm. So that's what a lot of that was. The, the pool filter. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Is that part of the role of commander that is a struggle for you, or do you embrace that wholeheartedly? I embrace it because we've got really good people. Yeah. They're just really solid people that do great things with our aircraft. So put yourself back in the situation when you were a... Uh, enlisted person that chose to commission. What rank were you when you did that? Oh, staff sergeant. You were a staff sergeant. Mm -hmm. So you had some supervisory mm -hmm. um, necessity in your job. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a strong road path. And we're like, hey, that works, and this is why we as a collective group are successful. Yeah. When you're leading people, when you're leading human beings, and, and I think you have the heart for it, um, sometimes you lead people that you love uh, whether you like them that day or mm -hmm. not, uh, and developing those skills, sometimes it takes time. Mm -hmm. When you get put in the situation where you know you're filtering a lot of stuff, you're protecting the people that you care about so they can just do their craft, how do you 
unwind from that because it's an immense <laughs> burden to carry. And first, what do you do to unwind? Well, <laughs> I know it's not sleep. Oh no, it's not that. <laughs> it's definitely not that. Hmm, trying to think the last time I got a chance to. Because right now I'm currently at Air War College, so trying to get that knocked out takes up a lot of time. But Air, Air War College is a, that special part of professional education that you yeah. have to go through to learn more about the culture of the Air Force, right? Yes. Okay. When I'm not doing that kind of stuff or out here working, I try to refinish furniture and build different, like, coffee tables, things like that. Uh, dink and putts around the house. Um, like running, well, I don't necessarily like running, but I do Who does? It. <laughs> you know, I work out to stay fit so we can remain Air Force compliant mm-hmm. specs. Um, read. And then try that whole sleep thing I've been hearing about, but that just doesn't. It's overrated. Yeah, you know. Well, it'll be there. Okay, let's do some quick questions, shall yeah. we? You know this part of the podcast? Great. Uh, I know you grew up on the south side of Chicago. Best food in Chicago? Giordano's Pizza. Oh, actually, Maxwell Street Polish. Okay. Superpower you wish you had? Hmm. Sleep. The sleeper. Movie that made you cry? Ooh, wasn't a movie, but it was uh, um, was around Thanksgiving, one of these. uh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Uh, Sports Sports Center? Oh. It was one of the things where they were highlighting a kid who had, I think, cerebral palsy or something like that, and he actually wanted to be a part of a team. Mm -hmm. And his balance was off, and he. He didn't want to just be the um, mascot of the team, so he went and he went around all the teams to see if he could join. They just put him on the bench, but the cross-country coach actually let him go. Coolest thing I had seen was in cross-country, your score comes from the place that people commit. All right. So with him, you knew you were always going to get that last spot, so the other runners had to run harder to try to balance out that lower score. By the time they were done with the story and they showed a meet because he'd fall and he'd get scuffed up and all that, all the kids from all the other schools would finish their race and run back to him and run with him the rest of the way. And that did it. Sports Center. Just that one story. All right. Most influential living person? Colonel Scott. Ah been on the podcast extreme sport you most want to try bull riding what bull riding that way prince or lou rawls oh um, (laughs) that's a tough one i'll go with prince all right but i dig some lou rawls though Uh, who doesn't yeah chicago native oh yeah i was going which which city you had the most tie with okay so when did you leave the south side of Chicago? Was it college that drew you away? 1989. Where'd you go to college? Xavier University, Louisiana, right in the heart of New Orleans. That's quite a step. That is one. Why did you choose Xavier? Um, great school, Historic Black College University. Okay. Um, wonderful program. The camaraderie there was amazing because all across the country you had folks that came together and everybody it wasn't like the a lot of the folks that I grew up with, where a lot of the cats I grew up with, either incarcerated or selling street pharmaceuticals or telling that same I'm gonna go back to school stuff since 1989. Still do? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They so when I go home and I see them, it's like, hey, how you doing? And I keep moving. So yeah. The significance of historical black historically black colleges and university is mm-hmm. very apparent right now mm-hmm. with our with our vice president uh, the relationships that are built the community like you talked about mm-hmm. uh, what what can higher education learn from that experience that you had growing uh, going through college I think it prepared me for pretty much anything I've come across 
you know, went to University of Minnesota for grad school, but great place, loved it. You know, it did the job it needed to do, but my heart was not there. Yeah. With Xavier in New Orleans, not only was I doing it for me, I'm doing it for the folks that were coming behind me, and I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for the family because I'm the first one in my family to go to college. For the folks who were before me that blazed that trail, we need to keep going because mm-hmm. there's more out there for us. And where did you get the skill to ask good questions of people? A lot of it from school because the instructors were rough because they expected, and more like any other instructor, but class size was small. Um, great line of teaching. The Socratic method was something that you were answering questions before you had to get to a point where you had to think ahead of your professor, but they were always ahead of you. Explain the Socratic method because that's that's a term I haven't heard. I mean it's stuck in the back of my head, but explain that. Coming from a view of one question is going to lead to the next, to the next, to the next. So you know that there's a full explanation that needs to happen from point A to point B. Whether the instructor's asking the question or you're answering the questions, knowing that they're going to come with a follow-up and they're going to come with a follow-up. And it's not that they're playing stump the dummy or anything like that. They're just trying to get you deeper into the material that you're learning. It's the journey, it's not the answer that we're looking for, right? For them, it was both. <laughs> it's a high stress. Yeah. So, uh, probably studied a lot of authors. Oh, for the most part, yeah. Um, I asked Colonel Scar this question when he was on the podcast. We had kind of an obscure way of going about, you know, what's your the favorite children's book that you would share with your students? Um, so you taught math. Mm-hmm. Did you use literature in that? What's what's the favorite children's book? that you got a lesson from, and what was the lesson? It wasn't anything that stood out. The cool thing about math, you should be able to put math in everything, because math is everywhere. I'm with you. Because as I'm looking outside through your window, I'm looking at the trees and the branches, I see angles, I see geometry, things like that. So no matter what you're reading, you should be able to pull some math out of it. Um, There are a lot of different books out there, like Math Counts and stuff like that, but. Yeah, off the top of my head, I can't remember a children's book that I use math for. That's fair. But you mentioned the trees, so I'm just going to ask you the question. Another quick question. Sure. Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. You read it? A long time ago. Do you identify with the boy or the tree? The tree. Is the tree a victim of the boy? I don't think so. Yeah. I've gotten into heated arguments about this. <laughs> <laughs> the boy was just using the tree, and I thought, wow, the tree sure is giving and self-sacrificial. Mm-hmm. Okay, you and I are common in that regard. Yeah, it's almost like our older technicians around here who are giving uh-huh. to that next level. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon, they're just a stump that somebody can sit on. That's it. <laughs> we must tr- you know, prune the tree of maintenance eventually. <laughs> <laughs> just like every organization that's yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, we are uh, rolling into a tough time. We're talking about extremism in the military. We have so many societal, social things that the military is handling. Mm -hmm. And we're having conversations that are kind of like this, but uh, on a more personal level. And maintenance is fortunate to have somebody that is a teacher and relationally based. Um, What gives you hope in the future? I have hope in our younger troops. I think they're definitely willing to do the job that we need them to do. The challenge is holding on to them because after they've received their college degrees and all that and used the benefits, they get leave if they so choose. We would love them to stay because they are great at what they do. I think our new generation is, I, I agree with you. You thank goodness the new generation is coming up because old people like us, we're going to be that stump that they're oh, sitting yeah. on here. Oh, eventually. definitely. Yeah. Um, 
when it comes to the hope that our youngest generation has, what do you think their greatest strength is? <laughs> They're very flexible. Yeah. They're focused. They're focused on what they need to focus on at that time. Because gone are the days where folks worked at a job, not all, but gone are the days where people spent 20, 30 years at a job. Mm -hmm. You know, you may get five, six years out of somebody and then they see a different opportunity and they take it. And then they'll ride that for a while and see something over there and they go. So they're very flexible and they are definitely looking for the better deal. It's a good thing and it's a struggle. It is. And, and I think we're seeing that out in society too. Companies mm -hmm. are having a hard time retaining mm -hmm. their talent. Mm -hmm. They're just a lot more mobile. Are we adapting well to that? We are because we're understanding our younger troops that are coming in. But we've got people who've been out here for 30 years and they're like, well, why wouldn't you want to stay out here? Yeah. You know, for those folks, that's what it was for them. But for our younger people, the movement, it's what it is for them. You asked me earlier how much time we got and we're out. Uh, Colonel Greg Hawkins, this has been wonderful. I, I so appreciate you sitting down, taking the time, and just uh, giving me a little bit, giving us a better picture of who you are and what we can do as we keep on building relationships around the way. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hope you can join me next time on Beneath the Wing, where I have another awesome guest, uh, and we will keep them coming as long as we can. Take care, everybody.